coming up on Economics Explored. The only thing that has happened is as fewer prescription pain pills have become available for diversion because of the cutback, the non-medical users have now sought alternatives. And of course, the black market, which is fueled by prohibition, is very efficient. So by around 2012, already heroin was starting to become more and more noticeable among overdose deaths. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 115 on the opioid crisis and the war on drugs. This is highly topical given that new data released in November 2021 showed that the United States had over 100,000 drug overdose deaths in the 12 months to April 2021. My guest this episode via Zoom from Phoenix, Arizona is Dr. Jeffrey Singer, MD. Dr. Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and he works in Cato's Department of Health Policy Studies. He is principal and founder of Valley Surgical Clinics, the largest and oldest group private surgical practice in Arizona he has been in private practice as a general surgeon for more than 35 years. Please check out the show notes for links to materials mentioned in this episode and for any clarifications. You can find the show notes via your podcasting app or at our website, economicsexplored.com. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions relating to this episode or to previous episodes, then please either record them in a message via SpeakPipe, link in the show notes or email them to me via contact at economicsexplored.com. Righto, now for my conversation with Dr. Jeff Singer on the opioid crisis and the war on drugs. Thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Crotz, for his assistance in producing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Jeff Singer from the Cato Institute, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jeff. Uh, Really looking forward to this conversation on the opioid crisis in the US and and increasingly we're hearing about this as an issue in Australia, a potential issue. And I'd also like to talk to you about the war on drugs and and what may be preferable, which is a harm reduction and a harm reduction approach. So I'd like to get onto that. But first, it'd be good if we could start with the uh, the opioid crisis in the US, because you've written extensively and commented extensively on this issue. And you've mentioned there's a number of myths about America's opioid crisis. One of those is that it's the fault of doctors over prescribing opioids. So we're talking, is it Oxycontin and is it fentanyl? Uh, why do you think it's a myth about doctors over prescribing them? Well, there's a lot of data to back it up, but it's interesting that we bring this discussion up today because here in the United States today, the uh, CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, announced that for the 12 months ending April 2021, the total drug overdose rate increased to 100,000. The provisional numbers for the year 2020, ending December 2020, were 93,000. And out of those, 100,000 total overdose deaths, about uh, 75,000 are opioid-related, and 85% of the opioid-related overdose deaths involved illicit fentanyl, 
which is not to be confused with pharmaceutical fentanyl, which we doctors have been using since the uh, 1960s. It's a very effective drug used in anesthesia and critical care patients and in other uh, pain patient settings. This is made in clandestine labs, much like meth is made in clandestine labs, now mainly uh, in south of the U.S. border out of components that are imported from China and other countries in Asia and then smuggled across the border in a powdered form and mixed with different illicit drugs or uh, made with pill presses to look like counterfeit prescription pain pills, which are then sold to unsuspecting uh, non-medical users of what they think is diverted prescription pain pills. Uh, only to reduce result in their dying from an overdose because of the potency of fentanyl. In fact, that's how uh, the the uh, musical artist Prince died a couple of years ago. He liked to non medically, recreationally use hydrocodone. Never record showed he never once got a prescription from a doctor. So he accessed what he thought was hydrocodone. It turns out it was fentanyl, and he died of an overdose death. The toxicology reports showed that. But to get to your question, because yeah, yeah. I digressed, it became a very popular notion in the early part of, of, of this century that because there were, you know, undoubtedly there were some doctors who were behaved, basically they were using their medical license and degree as a cover for being drug dealers. Uh, there was a doctor arrested, for example, in Newport Beach, California, for selling Oxycontin prescriptions at a Starbucks. Uh, there were uh, doctors who operated pain clinics, uh, which were just covers. Uh, they had arrangements with drug dealers where people would be would go into the doctor's clinic. And if they said the right words, they would be given a prescription for, let's say, a thousand Oxycontin pills. And then they were told the next by the drug dealer, they were told, now go to make sure you go to this pharmacist and ask for this particular pharmacist to fill them, then bring them to me and I'll give you a reward. They were actually, they were flying people down to Florida to clinics like that. It was called the Oxy Express, where it was worth it to the dealers to fly people down and give them perks to go, you know, collect these drugs for them, which would then be sold on a black market to non-medical users. So when these things were noticed to be happening and they were exposed in a couple of very powerfully written books like dreamland for example mm. or dope sick so when this got out um it became a very easy simple narrative to latch on to but the fact is if you look at at the data um the university of pittsburgh school of public health did uh, uh excellent research using government data going back to the 1970s and they have shown uh that the overdose rate has been growing exponentially since at least the late 1970s, which is as far back as they were able to go. And it's continuing to grow exponentially. As we see, the only variation over time has been which, which particular drug is predominating at, at any particular point in time. So, for example, in the, in the 70s and 80s, heroin was the predominant one. A lot of soldiers were coming back from Vietnam uh, with heroin habits. Uh, then it became cocaine was the predominant drug. Then in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was diverted. And it's important to emphasize diverted prescription pain relievers. In other words, um, I always ask people, tell you'll hear people say, my doctor gave me 30 oxycodone and I only needed 10. Mm. Uh, if they, if we made them into addicts, 
then the remaining 20 wouldn't be sitting in their medicine cabinet. They would have consumed them um, and instead of complaining about it. So in the early 2000s, uh, the drug of choice of non-medical users became diverted prescription pain pills. And then when it was decided by prohibitionist authorities that that was the problem, uh, they began clamping down on doctors prescribing. The, the Drug Enforcement Administration has quotas on how many uh, pharmaceutical grade opioids of every type can be made per year. They're supposed to somehow know how many pain pills of different categories the 330 million Americans are going to need next year. And they set quotas. Uh, monitoring uh, programs are set up in every state that watch the prescribing patterns of doctors. And if the law enforcement thinks that a doctor is prescribing, quote unquote, inappropriately, which, by the way, there's no legal definition of yeah. that. Um, then you'll see SWAT teams cracking down on doctor's offices. So right. doctors now have been under prescribing lately. And in fact, prescriptions are down per hundred persons, 60 percent since 2012. And what's been happening to the overdose rate is soaring. Uh, I published in the peer review medical literature with two other colleagues, the Journal of Pain Research, in 2019, we looked at data provided by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. They do a survey every year called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. They began that in 2002. And if you looked at past months, non-medical use of using their terminology, prescription pain reliever, non-medical use of prescription pain reliever, persons age 12 and up, essentially from 2002 when they began the survey until present, it's been basically a straight line, relatively flat. Also, past year diagnosed with prescription pain reliever use disorder. Now they call it opioid use disorder. Again, unchanged since 2002. Meanwhile, between 2002 and 2012, the prescription volume per 100 persons doubled. And then it's come down 60% since then. 2012 is the peak year in this country. And but but it has had no effect whatsoever on past months, non-medical use, or diagnosed the last year with opioid use disorder. The only thing that has happened is as fewer prescription pain pills have become available for diversion because of the cutback, the non-medical users have now sought alternatives. And of course, the black market, which is fueled by prohibition, is very efficient. So by around 2012, already heroin was starting to become more and more noticeable among overdose deaths. Uh, in fact, at the time, Dr. Thomas Frieden, the head of the CDC, said you could buy heroin on the street for one-fifth the price of an oxycodone pill. Right. And then fentanyl started to appear on the scene. And um, I'm sure this being an economics podcast, there's a, the old uh, iron law of prohibition that was put forth, I think, in the 1990s, or maybe it was the late 1980s. Basically, the harder the penalty, the harder the drug. So uh, um, it, it tends to promote the development of more potent forms of an illicit substance that could be, if you're going to take that kind of risk, you take a risk of something that you could subdivide into smaller amounts and make greater profit. And it's also easier to smuggle. So fentanyl began uh, getting mixed in first with heroin and other drugs to increase the potency. And now during the pandemic, the supply chain disruptions has actually also affected uh, the supply chain yeah. for heroin. You know, it's got to be grown. It's got to be processed. So fentanyl has filled a lot of that void. Uh, another important thing to note, and this is government data, uh, according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 75% uh, of people who 
were using non-medically prescription pain pills said that they'd gotten them from a friend, a relative, or a dealer, not from a doctor. Even uh, there was a a really good study done on over 27,000 people who were admitted to rehab for uh, opioid use disorder for addiction uh, in 2000, between 2004 and 2008. And again, 78% of them said they'd never gone to a doctor. They, they, they got them from a dealer or a friend and a roughly equivalent amounts had a previous, previously been treated for substance use disorder of a, of a different sort other than diverted prescription pain pills. So I contend that the overdose crisis is basically uh, uh, a result of prohibition that, uh, and there's also a lot of societal changes. People nowadays seem to be willing to take certain risks uh, that in an earlier time we weren't. I'm I'm an old, old enough to remember that we thought we my generation thought we were being pretty uh, um, adventurous and risque, you know, using cannabis, using marijuana. Yeah. Um, a, a study done by uh, Theodore Cicero at, at Washington University in St. Louis. He's a very uh, highly respected researcher on substance use disorder. They, they found that out of uh, heroin addicts being admitted to rehab programs in 2015, um, 33% said that their gateway drug, their, the drug they used to initiate non-medical use was heroin. Whereas 10 years earlier, Cicero found only 8.9% said that. And the majority had started on other opioids like diverted prescription opioids. So we're seeing, you know, there's a lot of things going on. It's, most things are not, most things in healthcare and in si- medical science are nuanced and multifaceted. And so there, there are societal dynamics going on. Um, uh, there are different values. Uh, people, people are willing to take different risks. But the, the bottom line is that as long as we're making uh, the engagement in non-medical drug use illegal, and we're making it more dangerous. And that's what's driving up the overdose rate. In the case of prescription opioids, we're actually now restricting the treatment of pain. We're actually making people who are in pain and needing pain medicine go undertreated. And of course, you've, I'm sure you've heard about the horror stories of doctors who are so afraid to prescribe opioids because they're afraid of getting arrested, that they're cutting off chronic pain patients that they've been controlling on a steady dose of opioids for years and making them invalids again, and make some of them resorting to the black market or to suicide for relief. So because we're wedded to this idea that doctors are over-prescribing is responsible for what's been going on for decades, um, even before these prescription pain pills were prescribed, uh, because we've locked into that. So now we're, ha- we're creating a situation of the worst of all possible outcomes where we're making people who need treatment for pain go undertreated. And at the same time, people who are n- non-medically using, uh, being driven to more dangerous drugs to n- in order to non-medically use. So we're, we're, we're killing those people and depriving people who need pain medicine. Right. Okay. So Jeff, yeah, lots to potentially speak about there. I'm interested in the different types of people who end up resorting to the uh, opioids without a prescription. And you mentioned that it might be because the doctors have cut back on, they won't prescribe as many opioids. What about, um, are there people who are, who are using them for, uh, well, is it, is it for a high? Is it, is it, just like a, a normal drug? I mean, are there people who are using it to self-medicate because 
they can't afford healthcare or they or they've got dental pain or they've got chronic pain and they they can't afford to get treatment what are the different types of people who are who are abusing opioids or are using without a prescription I think you just covered okay. <laughs> cover the waterfront. The, it's, it's all of the above. I mean, some people, there are anecdotal reports. Of course, we don't have data on this because it's being done illicitly. But some there, there are numerous reports of people who, after having been cut off from their pain medicine, have resorted to the black market to, to get relief. And by the way, a lot of them are victimized by purchasing what they thought were oxycodone or hydrocodone pills, but in fact were counterfeit and were made of fentanyl. So they're getting, they're dying from overdoses, you know, because they were duped. But you also have a lot of people who over, you know, over the generations, there are always going to be people who like to use drugs. Uh, they, they could be self-medicating for other issues like, you know, depression. Uh, people drink alcohol to self-medicate sometimes. So that's their drug of choice. Some people enjoy the feeling they get. Um, I, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were out to dinner with some friends and uh, the, the woman of the, in the couple was you know, talking about that she just had uh, two knee operations and she's still taking pain medicine because she hurts. And she told me that uh, tramadol is, uh, is, seems to be working now. It's taking the pain away. She was quick to tell me, but it's not giving me a high or a buzz. And she wanted to reassure me. And I laughed. Uh, I guess she didn't know, know she, some of my views on this. And yeah. I said, you know, it's funny. You're telling me while you have a martini in your hand that you don't want me to get worried that you're enjoying the feeling that you're getting from the pain reliever for your knees because you're only allowed to enjoy the feeling you get when you're drinking gin mixed with vermouth. Yeah, and, right. and that's the point. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, arbitrarily over the years we've, you know, in, in many countries and societies and governments have declared certain drugs that affect, you know, your, your uh, psyche or your, your, you know, that have psychological effects. Uh, certain drugs are quote unquote bad or off limits and other drugs aren't. So it's okay to use alcohol, which by the way is, can have, we all know has very, it could be very seriously dangerous. It could injure many body organs, including the brain. But it's okay to, to to alter your consciousness with that. It's just not okay to alter your consciousness with, let's say, an opioid, which when used, when when if you were able to obtain an opioid legally, not on a black market, so you know exactly what you're getting, you know, it's, so you know it's not adulterated with, let's say, fentanyl or any other adulterant, and you know the dose, opioids actually less harmful to the body. Um, long-term use has been shown to cause constipation, That's well, but that's manageable. Uh, there's evidence that it could reduce uh, the gonadal hormones, the estrogen and testosterone, which could secondarily affect your bone mineralization, cause osteoporosis. But again, that's manageable, but it doesn't cause liver disease, doesn't cause cancer. Uh, there's no evidence that has any organic impact on the brain, like causing encephalopathy, like alcohol can do, or alcoholic psychosis. It's actually a lot safer. Um, again, in order to fuel the propaganda, if you've seen these, these uh, TV shows or movies, or you've read, you've read about the lawsuits in the United States, yeah. they're accusing the pharmaceutical manufacturers of lying when they said that there's a very low addiction potential from opioids when used as directed. 
But in fact, that's the case. Uh, at least two Cochrane systematic reviews, which is the most rigorous form of, you know, Cochrane Collaborative is, is highly respected. It's affiliated with the World Health Organization. They're the most rigorous uh, systematic analyses. Showed a roughly one to two percent addiction rate with chronic pain patients, chronic long-term use, and the overdose rate when used as directed, and if you don't mix with other drugs, is well below one percent. In fact. Uh, Dr. Dasgupta at the University of North Carolina a couple of years ago was commissioned by the state to do a study. And they followed 2.5 million North Carolinians prescribed opioids for medical use in the course of one year. And the overdose rate was 0.002%. And out of those, two thirds of those people had multiple drugs on board to potentiate the opioid, like uh, uh, benzodiazepine, like Xanax or Valium or alcohol. And I think I mentioned earlier, but if I didn't, I should have, uh, among the overdoses that occur today, more, well more than 90% are polydrug. In other words, when the person's found to have overdosed from fentanyl, it's not just fentanyl, it's fentanyl and alcohol and Xanax and a lot of times cocaine and methamphetamine all mixed in. Mm. Again, it's not the picture of a patient who's been addicted to pain medicine. It's a picture of a person who's using different drugs non-medically, either recreationally or well, for whatever reasons they may have. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll have to look up that study for North Carolina because yeah. based on those numbers, I mean, it sounds like there must be a, a high proportion of the population that have been prescribed opioids. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. In fact, another study, uh, I'll be happy to send it to you, by yeah. the way. Another study that was done by uh, researchers at Harvard Medical School and uh, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health I believe it came out in the early 2018. Uh, they followed 568,000, what they call opioid naive, which means that obviously they haven't received opioids, post-surgical patients between the years 2008 and 2016 in the Aetna Insurance Database. And their diagnostic codes that are used in this country and is a co- misuse codes are codes that are applied when you're using the drug, misusing the drug, which has a spectrum of misuse. So one form of misuse, of course, is recreationally. Another form could be if you had some leftover oxycodone in the medicine cabinet and you're having trouble falling asleep one night, so you take it to help fall asleep. That's considered misuse. They found a total misuse rate of 0.6%. So again, uh, when we hear uh, the prosecutors uh, say, you lied to the doctors by telling them it has a low addictive potential and uh, a low overdose potential. No, they didn't lie. They're actually, t- <laughs> that's what the data show. Interestingly, uh, and I don't know if you're aware of, the, of this in Australia, but just in the last two weeks, two cases occurred. One in Southern California where multiple California counties joined to sue uh, some of the pharmaceutical companies. And one in Oklahoma where Johnson & Johnson was found guilty of causing the opioid crisis because one of its divisions makes one of the raw materials for an opioid. And unlike the other companies, they didn't, they chose not to settle. So they took it all the way to trial. And the Supreme Court of Oklahoma overturned the lower court's decision and basically said what I just said that, well, in addition to that, they said, you can't blame them for manufacturing a legal drug for legal use that was prescribed legally Mm. if some people then took it and used it for other things. But on top of that, in their opinions, they cited what I'm telling you. Uh, And it's unfortunate that most of the 
defendants in these other lawsuits that you probably read about taking place in this country have made strategic decisions just to settle. Mm. I, I understand, you know, suing against the government, which has uh, unlimited resources, is very intimidating. So it's probably typical for your attorneys to recommend settling. Yeah. But in the case of Johnson & Johnson, in the case of the defendants in uh, Southern California, they decided to take it all the way to trial and they prevailed. Right. That's that's brand new. I'll have to check that out. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, uh, when you were saying about fighting the government, you, you'd be familiar with that saying. I don't know if you have it in the States, but you can't fight City Hall. That's a, Oh, yeah. That's yeah. an oldie. <laughs> yeah. Um, just on uh, the uh, the corporates involved, uh, McKinsey, the consultancy, has been caught up in this. I don't know if you've seen those stories, but the, this uh, made the news here in Australia last year. The Australian managing partner of McKinsey regrets consultancy's role during opioid epidemic. A damaging expose has revealed how international consulting firm McKinsey and Company tried to pump up sales of an addictive painkiller during the opioid epidemic. And so the uh, the Australian head had uh, apologised yeah. for that. So, um, look, I guess there are people, people are sort of naturally suspicious of big pharma and i think that's probably leading people to uh to suspect that they might have been pushing these drugs uh more than is uh, socially desirable so i think that's where a lot of the uh the, the concern comes from i'm not i'm not here to defend these companies either and uh, there is a lot of evidence that some of their sales reps were over aggressive. That's not the yeah. point. The point is that that didn't cause the overdose crisis. The overdose crisis, in fact, the University of Pittsburgh study, like I said, found that the overdose overdoses were increasing exponentially before the invention of OxyContin mm. and its approval in 1996, well yeah. before then. Um, another thing that's, uh, I think, part of the problem, and even we doctors are guilty of this, there's a tendency to conflate addiction and dependency, and they're not the same thing. Okay, you'll have to explain that to me, please. Yep. Right. I think this is very important for everyone to know. Yep. Um, dependency is when your body physiologically adjusts to the presence of the drug such in such a way as if you then withdraw the drug, you could have a terrible reaction. Also, a, a corollary dependency is sometimes... Because it's adjusted, you need to increase the dose of the drug. That's called tolerance. That's not the same thing as addiction. Uh, dependency is seen with many, many drugs. For example, beta blockers, which are commonly used to treat high blood pressure. You develop a dependency on that, and doctors will tell their patients, if you decide you want to get off the beta blocker, talk to me first because we have to taper you gradually. If you abruptly stop, you could have a, a hypertensive crisis, a stroke, a heart attack. That's a withdrawal reaction. Nobody would say you're addicted to a beta blocker. And also, if you've been on that beta blocker on which you are now dependent for, let's say, 10 consecutive years, and it's been successfully keeping your blood pressure in good check, then nobody would say, well, he's been dependent on that beta blocker for too long. We better get him off it. Now, addiction, okay, addiction is defined, and all, all addiction specialists agree, as compulsive use despite negative consequences. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of predisposing factors. Almost every person who develops uh, addiction, also called substance use disorder, if you look into their, if you do, th ther you know, therapists will look into their past and you'll find they almost all have a history of some traumatic events during early developmental, early development. Uh, about two thirds or more have 
psychoneurologic comorbidities like uh, ADHD or OCD or on, they're on the autism spectrum. And so between the trauma that they had and these comorbidities, they're already sort of uh, troubled and oftentimes outsiders when they're socializing in, in, their, in their youth. And then when they get introduced to drug experimentation, which a lot of young people do, especially if they're hanging around with other outcasts who do that, they develop a different relationship with the drug than most people do. The drug becomes, uh, it's, it's almost an automatized um, mechanism where you, you want to, you feel compelled to go there. That's your safe place. Yeah. And, and it's almost unconsciously you feel driven to do it. That's addiction. And you see that with gambling addiction. You see that with uh, shopping addiction. So uh, a lot of addiction specialists say the drug isn't addicting you. You develop an unhealthy relationship with that drug. Well, okay. So the same thing goes for opioids. So because opioids, you develop dependency and tolerance when you're taking opioids long-term, People say he got addicted to opioids. That's not necessarily the case. If you have a person who has, let's say, horrible scoliosis and has been unable to work and enjoy life, and they've been now maintained on 10 milligrams of morphine three times a day, plus a little bit of extra, some other opioid, and it's allowed them to go back to work and basically enjoy their life as long as they take that. And they've been on that dose for 10 years. Yes, they're dependent. And yes, they've been on it for a long time, but they're not necessarily addicted. Although we in the public would say because it's an opioid, he's addicted to that opioid. We don't say the person taking the beta blocker is addicted to the beta blocker. And just like we don't don't say we need to take the person off the beta blocker because they've been on it too long. We shouldn't say we need to take that person off the opioid because he's addicted to it because he's been on it for 10 straight years. We better get him off it. But that's what we're doing today. So a lot of it is based upon wrong understandings of, of, of addiction versus dependency. And even we doctors are guilty of using the words interchangeably when they're really very distinct, different, distinct things. Okay. Jeff, just so, just to make sure I fully understand what you're saying, I get the distinction between addiction and dependency. How does this influence or how does this misunderstanding affect policy or affect our understanding of the problem? How, how is it, how is this highly relevant to that? Well, it's because we know of, and you know, it's very well known and it's publicized that some people who've been taking opioids for a long period of time, even people who've been in a hot, let's say they're in a hospital for two months after a terrible accident, yeah. and they've developed dependency on the painkillers they were given, and they go into withdrawal. Um, that's misinterpreted as they became addicted. Mm. So then we have you know, plaintiffs, attorneys, or politicians saying this is a highly addictive drug. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. And that's and that's a mistake. Yeah. It's not a highly addictive drug. It's a drug upon which people can develop a dependency. And it's important for prescribers as well as patients to be aware of that. And that may influence people's choices as to which medication they want to be on, but it doesn't, they don't need to be stigmatized with this term. You know, addiction is unfortunately a stigma, even though it should be viewed as a behavioral disorder, like any other illness, you know, we don't stigmatize diabetics. We shouldn't stigmatize people who have substance use disorder, yeah. but it is unfortunately. And, and that's, that influences a lot of the policies we have towards opioids, as opposed to the way we look at other drugs. Okay. Just out of interest, because uh, well, I'm a great fan of that show, Mad Men. And 
one thing you notice every scene when Don Draper sort of goes home to his apartment or to his house, he first thing he does is after he greets his wife, is pours himself a yeah a a dram of a Canadian Dry or whatever whatever whiskey he's uh, he's drinking at the time. And uh, I mean, is is that addictive behaviour? I don't think so. I mean, okay. un- unless, of course, you know, you can get addicted to alcohol also, right? We know, all know of people mm. who have a quote unquote drinking problem. And again, it's compulsive use despite negative consequences. So when you have a person who's drinking is now affecting his marriage, yeah. his friendships, his job, and there have been negative consequences and he can't bring himself to stop. And he, he recognizes that that's the source of his problem. That's addiction. Yeah, yeah. I guess he does start to go to AA at one at one point, or he does try to cut back. Um, yeah, I've just been wondering about the distinction. I know alcohol does create it can have you can have dependency problems, and I've heard that it's something that for some people you can't go cold turkey off it. That's actually quite dangerous. You need to dial it down. Like some people can go cold turkey, but some people when they've been on a lot. They go into withdrawal. Of yeah. course, the worst case is called delirium tremens or DTs, yeah. which even today has about a 15% fatality rate. Uh, I, I trained in a county hospital when I was learning to be a surgeon, had a lot of uh, a large indigent population and a lot of people had alcohol addiction and we had to operate on them and they were going to obviously be without alcohol for a couple of days. And usually that shows up around day three, the withdrawal. So it was commonplace and acceptable for us when they were able to eat, we'd, we'd actually order uh, a beer or wine with their meals yeah. intentionally so they can get some alcohol so they wouldn't go into withdrawal while they're in the hospital. By the way, that's an example of harm reduction. Ah, it is too. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to chat about that. But I was going to, uh, I'll have to come back uh, in, an, in a future episode to talk about alcohol because you know, that is, there are a lot of social costs associated with alcohol, but because we, it's such an accepted part of our society and so many of us are drinkers, uh, we often uh, try to ignore those, uh, those costs. Uh, but uh, yeah, they're, they're certainly out there. So I'll, I'll have to come back to that in a future episode. Okay. This has been... Uh, fascinating, Jeff. What do I... There's a few other things I want to chat about. Are oh, you... We may have covered this already, but in an article in the Virginian Pilot, you argue that veterans pay the price of bungled opioid policies. Now, I think this is your point about how, mm-hmm. um, because we've because we're trying to restrict doctors from prescribing opioids, then there is it that the veterans are seeking out black market opioids? Is that the case? Uh, no, there's actually suicide rates have gone up dramatically among veterans who are getting their health through the veterans health system in the United States. Many of them have chronic pain yeah, and they've been maintained uh, on opioids and the physicians in the veterans health system have been pressured to taper, abruptly taper off for what we were talking about earlier, how you've been on this a long time, so you're dependent. Therefore, we got to get you off of it. And when they got off, their pain recurred and the despair recurred and their inability to engage in everyday activities that they can enjoy and can enjoy occurred. And so suicide rates have gone up dramatically, particularly in the rural uh, veterans hospitals where uh, in the rural areas, the veterans have less access to alternative sources of health care, yeah. except for the VA system. Whereas in the city, at least there are other doctors around that you can go to outside of the veteran system. 
Right. So this is veterans who are dealing with trauma or, well, PTSD, is it? No, these are veterans who are dealing with injuries, usually oh, right. you know, okay. war-related war injuries that are, that are causing chronic severe pain. Right. Uh, that's that's what we're talking about. Okay. I'll put a link to that article. It, it's tragic, uh, that story. Okay. We better get on to, because we're yeah, going, yeah, well, it's, uh, it's been a good conversation. It's been a long conversation. You've got about five to 10 more minutes, Jeff? So yeah, we want, I wanted to talk a little bit about harm reduction. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, in some of your work, you talk about a shift from a war on drugs to a harm reduction approach. Uh, could you explain what you mean by that, please? Well, for example, uh, like I mentioned earlier, when we would give people with alcohol use disorder post-operatively beer and wine to avoid withdrawal. That was a form of harm reduction. Yeah. But harm, the term harm reduction actually grew out of a movement that started in Liverpool, England in the 1980s, when there was an explosion of, of HIV cases due to sharing dirty needles. And uh, some caring healthcare practitioners said, why don't we give clean needles and syringes to these drug users so that they won't be spreading HIV. Yeah. And that's how it started. And um, so the whole idea is that informs harm reduction is, is number one, it's non-judgmental. And number two, it's realistic. It accepts the fact that you're never going to have a drug-free world. It's not going to happen. So uh, if your concern is for the well-being of the people who are using these drugs, uh, do what you can to make that less harmful to them. So, for example, examples of that are uh, giving out clean needles and syringes, uh, safe consumption sites, which unfortunately are federally illegal in the United States, but are legal in Australia. There, there are, I think, two or three in Australia. I know one in oh, Melbourne yeah. and one in Sydney. I think there's a third one. And there are hundreds throughout the developed world. There are 38 in Canada where people uh, come in and you bring in their illicit drug, but uh, they get to test it to see if it has fentanyl in it that they didn't know of, so they could adjust, if so, adjust what they're going to take. Uh, and they could, uh, they're given a clean needle and syringe, and somebody's standing by with the overdose antidote naloxone in the event that they overdose. And they're given a place to clean up and, and wash, because a, a lot of people, unfortunately, they're living on the street, they're not clean. And uh, they're asked to hang around before they leave, so they get over that initial high and could walk out a little with, you know, with their faculties in better control. And what ends up happening as a byproduct, when people are uh, basically getting the message that somebody actually cares about them, yeah. that they're not looking at them as somebody who should die because they're doing something, quote unquote, evil, they tend to open up and they become much more uh, amenable to getting taken into rehab programs and, and the like. So uh, these are all forms of harm reduction, giving out. Uh, the overdose antidote naloxone, uh, which in Australia is available over the counter, as it is in Italy, and the United States still requires a prescription. You know, I, I'm, I, these are some examples. Now, um, the, the best form of harm reduction, of course, would be to end prohibition. Mm. Because when I go into a store to buy a bottle of, let's say, bourbon, yeah, and it says 40, that's my favorite drug of choice, by the way, <laughs> and it says 45% alcohol content, it never even crosses my mind that somebody might be lying to me and it might be 90% alcohol and maybe have some arsenic in it or something like that. Why? Because it's legal yeah. and it's regulated and there's a, the store won't sell it to someone, you know, under the age of 18, or down in the United States under the age of 21. 
and there's recourse if it's not what it's, it says it will be. So it never occurs to me. It's safer. Also, the alcohol manufacturers, if they're having territorial disputes with their competitors, they got a court system to go to to settle that as opposed to having to have, you know, their soldiers drive by and shoot the other company's soldiers. Um, but um, as long as these drugs are illegal, you don't know what's in it. And of course, it, there's the violence that goes with it. So the best form of harm reduction would be to make these drugs legal. The second best form would be decriminalization. Yeah. So at least we're not putting people in cages for, for because their drug of choice is different than the officially recognized drugs of choice, like alcohol or tobacco or something like that. Um, and uh, so that helps mitigate some social harms and, and put a lot of that uh, resources that have been, you know, put into uh, efforts like law enforcement into efforts like harm reduction, like, safe consumption sites and rehab centers and that sort of thing, which is what they've successfully done in Portugal. And now they're looking at doing in, in, in uh, Norway and Czechoslovakia, I mean, sorry, the Czech Republic, and they're entertaining in other countries. So that's the second best uh, form. And then either way, whichever form you adopt, harm reduction just makes sense. And when you think about it as a healthcare practitioner, that's a lot of what we do in developed countries anyway for you know a lot of the problems we treat as doctors are problems that are lifestyle decisions made in in you know affluent abundant society so yeah. when a doctor has a patient let's say who's overweight and uh has mild diabetes and high blood pressure and a doctor knows that you can get this person under control without even any medication if they would just agree to go on a, a diet and exercise regimen but they're either unable to or uninterested in doing it. So you put them on a medication for their high blood pressure and for their mild diabetes and maybe a statin drug to lower their cholesterol. Well, that's actually practicing harm reduction. It's accepting the fact that regardless of what I think, this person, I can't control his lifestyle choices. So let me do what I can to make those choices less dangerous. Yeah. So harm reduction is just a good idea. And that's a good way to move into the whole e-cigarette issue which uh, disappointingly your country has now made very difficult for people to get. I think you have to go to a doctor's surgery and get a prescription in order to get an e-cigarette. And, you know, the science is pretty impressive on this, that uh, nicotine containing e-cigarettes have been a very effective tool to get people who want to quit tobacco smoking off of smoking tobacco. Now the drug nicotine, which is in the tobacco smoke is what people can get addicted to. But it's not, it's a relatively harmless drug. It's, it's sort of, it's in the same family as caffeine. It's a stimulant. Uh, if you have, you can get toxic levels as you can yeah. with caffeine, but generally speaking, it's, it, it doesn't ha cause a, a much harm. Um, but it's the other components of the tobacco smoke that do all the harm to your cardiovascular system, cancer causing agents, et cetera. So we, we have found that using nicotine containing e-cigarettes studies have shown that it's more effective than nicotine chewing gum nicotine patches in helping people want to who want to get off tobacco smoke and get off tobacco smoke yet and, and my country's guilty of this too in fact the the fda the food and drug administration is uh on the ver is, is severely restricted the legal ability of uh nicotine containing e-cigarettes and um we don't know yet what the, the final verdict is going to be, but these not only are we in my, in my opinion, for no good reason, uh, 
We're saying it's okay for you to chew nicotine gum, but you can't you can't ingest it in the form of a vape. Maybe that's psychological because it looks too much like smoking. I don't know why people are against it, but this is an excellent form of harm reduction. And even if a person is using it just because they enjoy the feeling they get from nicotine. So again, uh, are we going to control caffeine? Because some people, and I'm one of them, yeah. I love my caffeine <laughs> in the morning. That's, that yeah. gets me going. So <laughs> if we're going to start controlling every single substance that people use because they feel they get a positive, uh, they get a, they feel they're deriving a certain benefit from it, whether it's a, a pleasure or uh, alertness or, or, or focus, then we're going to have to ban almost everything. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, hopefully not, uh, definitely not caffeine. We don't, we, d- we definitely don't want that banned. And, uh, and you're a bourbon drinker. I'm a, I'm a Scotch drinker, but I do like a, a bourbon from time to time. So good stuff. You, you mentioned Australia and our, our, our approach and you've written an article, whose lungs are they anyway? I'll put a link to that in the show notes. That's in quadrant online. And, you at least give some credit to Australia, don't you? Give credit where it's due by legalizing medicinal nicotine vaping. At least Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration recognizes the harm reduction potential of nicotine containing vapor products, vaping products. In the US, the FDA appears oblivious to the benefits of e-cigarettes as, a, as it heads toward an outright ban. Okay, that's what you said before. Okay, very good. I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can check that out. Um, just finally, one thing I'd like to sort of, figure out i've been trying to work this out but who's that what are the constituencies that are in favor of maintaining the war on drugs or our hardline approach to drugs now was it richard nixon who brought in who ramped up the war on drugs in the 70s um but i mean it's a it's an issue where i think you you probably got people on on all sides of politics that mm-hmm. that, that would recognize that the you know this war on drugs has failed that it's cost billions and billions of dollars there was some ridiculous number i cited when i was chatting with mark victor of, i think it was from brookings or one of those institutions i'll put a link to it in the show notes it just cost the uh, the uh, our uh, our country's you know immense amounts of money for uh, such poor outcomes i mean who's actually Who's supportive of maintaining the the status quo? Have you do you have any thoughts on that before we go? Jeff? Well, a lot of politicians have you know advanced their careers, particularly as prosecutors and attorneys general. Uh, there's a whole law enforcement industry, from the Drug Enforcement Administration to all the way down to the local level, uh, whose existence is justified by going after drug dealers. You know, every week we hear about the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest haul of this yeah. drug and that drug until the next week when they get the biggest one. So they're, but these are job creators for, for a certain group of people. And then um, I, I'm old enough to remember we've been, many of us, regardless of our ideology, have been indoctrinated since at least the seventies to think that these drugs are evil and highly dangerous. I mean, people think that if you take to this day, there are some people who think if you just take one hit of uh, an opioid, like whether it's diamorphine, which is the brand name is heroin, or morphine or oxycodone, that you suddenly become addicted, which is not not possible. But this is a, has been, you know, kind of inculcated into us since our youth. So you got some of these kind of things. Interestingly, in, in, in my country, across the, the ideological spectrum, there's, there's a lot of agreement that 
the war on drugs needs to be ended. Uh, you have organizations like mine, the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank yeah. that since its inception has been saying this. But even uh, think tanks on the left, the Progressive Policy Institute, Urban Institute, they take similar positions. This is one of those areas where um, it's, it really doesn't necessarily break down on ideologic grounds. Uh, the National Review, which is uh, sort of the flagship publication in the United States of the conservative movement came out for ending the war on drugs. I think it was, it was a cover story in the early 1990s. So it's, it's, it, this is one of those areas where you have your entrenched interests and also uh, entrenched biases. And then you have uh, very disparate groups who see otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that, uh, Jeff. That was, uh, yeah, I think you made some great points there. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's something I've that's always fascinated me because it just seems well to economists it seems pretty clear that yeah prohibition isn't really a, a sensible approach uh, uh, and uh, yeah some sort of uh, yeah decriminalisation and a harm reduction approach that 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 would be much more preferable. Okay, um, Jeff, this has been a great conversation. Where can we find more about your work? Do you have a Twitter handle or is there some place you regularly blog? Obviously, there's the Cato website I could refer people to. I, I, I regularly blog at the Cato Institute's uh, blog, which is Cato at Liberty. But you could find that and everything else that I do at the Cato website. That's C-A-T-O dot O-R-G. Uh, my Twitter handle is at D-R number four Liberty, at Dr. For Liberty. and uh, between those two, you should be able to, uh, everything I, I, I blog on, I then tweet out on doc, at Dr. For Liberty. Excellent. Okay, Jeff, really appreciated your insights. That's been great. Thanks so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.